Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome to this month's episode. Today we have an interview that Eva did with Dr. Peter Jurgensen from the Stockholm Resilience Center. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. So today we have with us Peter Jorgensen from Stockholm's uh, Resilience Center. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about his uh, very exciting work that has started quite recently, right? Yeah. Can you, Peter, please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Hello, everybody. So I'm Peter Jorgensen. Um, and as Eva said, I'm a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center and at a program at the Academy of Sciences in Stockholm uh, called uh, Global Economic Dynamics and the Biosphere. So that's why I work. Can you maybe summarize what is it that you are working on right now? Yeah, so uh, Stockholm Resilience Center is, is a center that works in within the field of sustainability science, where we try and tackle the big challenges of society. So you can say, how can we live on a planet that is sustainable, but also have a good life at the same time? That's that's the general small task that we're trying to solve at the Resilience Center. Um, but right now, I'm one of the few people there who actually work on antibiotic resistance from a sustainability perspective, uh, which is kind of what I've been doing the past four or five years. Yeah, so wh- what is your background? What did you focus on when you started your scientific career and how has it kind of moved towards AMR now? Yeah, so I mean, that's, a, I think, for me, a really interesting question. Uh, my background is in ecology and evolutionary biology, um, but not related to antibiotic resistance originally. But I came into the field because I was involved in a paper uh, that we published in 2014 where we tried to look at the ways evolutionary biology can help uh, address societal challenges. And that was uh, interesting work to be involved in. Um, And of course, antibiotic resistance is evolutionary biology in action. Uh, So it's really one of the big challenges, I think, where evolutionary biology can play a role or should inform society in how we try and cope with uh, with these challenges. And that's really how I got more interested in this particular topic, because that, that's, that's one of the key things for me as an evolutionary biologist, where I, th- I saw I could make a difference. So, so that's how I came into the field. Coming from such a hardcore discipline, scientifically speaking, you know, evolutionary biology is also kind of complex. It's uh, something that is not so easy to translate into into general knowledge and make people understand what evolutionary biology is. What did you found more challenging when you were actually starting this work? Because I see that your work is a lot about how you can help the people from this very scientific perspective. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, again, a good question, I think. Um, and a lot of what we found out is, I mean, evolutionary biology is really about change and how we uh, understand change in the living world. I think in the this era that we call the Anthropocene, where humans dominate uh, the planet, we're seeing a lot of changes all around us. And they are both e- evolutionary and ecological in nature, right? And often now we often refer to them as eco-evolutionary, where evolutionary processes and ecological processes interact over the same time scale in contemporary time. So I think evolutionary biology has a lot to do, uh, but then exactly how you go about applying it to the societal challenges, I, I think is where we ran into the biggest uh, stumbling blocks uh, because often, and this is what our main finding was from that paper was that really it's, uh, the main obstacles to applying these solutions, they are lying in the realm of social sciences and not in the uh, realm of uh, biological or 
uh, evolutionary biology. And that's where I then started moving more seriously into the field of sustainability science, where we try and combine equally the insights from social science with those of natural science. How does that uh, interface and this interdisciplinary work looks like in mm -hmm. your day-to-day -day basis? That's a good question. I, I guess uh, it looks like me sitting at a desk very often, uh, so not too different from many other people, I guess. One of the interesting aspects is that you get to interact with uh, people from many, many different backgrounds. And one of the key first things to do there that never really stops is uh, finding a common language and understanding what we mean uh, when we say one thing from with one background and another thing with another background. Um, so creating a common language is, is the first thing to do, really. So you work, as you said, at the Stockholm Resilience Center, and this center per se is very multidisciplinary because it looks more at the sustainability. So there's not only AMR-related mm -hmm. projects, there's also probably many other disciplines. Do you also have collaborative projects with these other kind of areas, not only AMR? Absolutely. I think AMR as a sustainability challenge has a lot of similarities with other sustainability challenges. I think the analogy of uh, climate change has been powerful in both creating awareness about the problem of uh, AMR in, in the public, but also again, in for people that work on AMR to understand how, how have other people actually uh, tried to do science on these sustainability challenges. So, so absolutely, there's a lot of interaction. And I think some of the insights from dealing with uh, antibiotic resistance that that field can contribute to the broader area of sustainability science is really that it's so dynamic. I mean, it, we're seeing change happening so quickly. So once we change our actions, I mean, we immediately see... Uh, adaptation in, in, in the bacteria around us, right, or, or lack of adaptation. So it's so dynamic, and at the same time, it's also it's a classic example of what we call escalation or an arms race. And I think that's something that's maybe unique but to this particular sustainability challenge, but is something that can actually be understood or yeah, has, has implications for other areas. I really like this point of view because sometimes yeah, when we talk about antibiotic resistance or AMR mm -hmm. and we compare it to, as you said, like climate change, it feels like the AMR field has a lot of things to learn from the climate change because it's been a longer battle, so to speak, even though we know AMR has been going on for a really long time. But it, it is like climate change is much bigger of a thing. But I like that you are presenting this, that also climate change science and research and challenges can learn from what we are now knowing about the AMR crisis. This is very interesting. Can you maybe dwell a little bit more on that for our audience? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think fundamentally AMR is about having a sustainable relationship with microorganisms around us. And there is nothing more that we're more intimately into twined with on the planet, I would say, than, than microorganisms. I mean, we have hundreds of them in our bodies all the time, right? And so if you take a broader perspective on it, it's really about finding out how to live sustainably with something that we are really intimately connected with. And that's something that climate change or water uh, research can really learn a lot from, uh, where we have some insights from AMR that are that are unique, but with broad application. There is a thing that we sometimes talk about here, or 
more in private conversations, I don't think we've maybe have mentioned in the podcast, that because climate change, there are some people that are a bit, you know, restrained to really believe that this something is happening. I think that AMR world might not be facing those same challenges, but what do you, what is your perspective on that? What, what is your opinion on that? Do you think we are going to see some point where people are going to say, no, AMR is not something that is really happening or that is not real? I think there are always people that put emphasis on different things, right? So some may see resistance as a bigger problem than others. But I think one, you could say, advantage or unfortunate advantage is that AMR is something that when it hits, it hits very personal. It's, it affects human lives directly or, you know, the disease course, right? Yeah, so, in a tangible way, right? That maybe yeah. climate change doesn't have that per se. Yeah, it's it's more, uh, you, there, there's a, lo- a longer causal chain mm-hmm. to connect uh, say extreme weather events to climate change i mean we we can do that but there's no doubt when you see a resistant infection and somebody may be dying from that 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 changes everybody involved in that situation i think their perspective so i think that's one unfortunate you could say advantage that amr has yeah Yeah. kind of um i'm wondering i'm curious about you're here to give a seminar and to explain to our audience what your work is can you also bring to our podcast audience what is it that you're working on yeah so i currently work on uh couple of different uh, things. I, I can talk about uh, two projects, one that we're sort of uh, winding down and one that is just uh, starting up. Mm-hmm. The first project is a project we call uh, Living with Resistance and has taken place over the past uh, four years or so, where we brought experts together from across social and natural sciences and not only from antibiotic resistance, but also from areas of insecticide and herbicide resistance, so pesticide resistance, to learn about how we can change the ongoing dynamics of of, uh, resistance evolution, which we perceive as really sort of having resembled an arms race. So how how do we change away from that dynamic? We call it, how do we change toward de-escalation? And that has been a for me, a really intellectually stimulating project. Some of the things we've been working on there is really changing the way we talk about AMR. So, for example, we often talk about preserving antimicrobial effectiveness as the key, that's the key challenge or the key goal for us to to achieve. And I think there's an important nuance to that that we might want to think about and maybe that would lead to us uh, talking differently about it. Because I think when we talk about preserving antibiotic effectiveness, you can do that in several ways, but often a lot of focus is on uh, on doing that through uh, drug innovation. But yeah, I think bringing new antibiotics, R&D, yeah. Exactly. But I think especially now with recent reports from WHO showing that there will be some time before we see new drugs online, we need a different perspective. And we actually need to think about, instead of talking about antimicrobial effectiveness, I think we need to talk about antimicrobial susceptibility, Mm. which Mm. is fundamentally a property of the bacteria or the microorganism and not a property of the antibiotic. And that really makes it the challenge of AMR even more fundamentally a challenge of uh, ecological sustainability or environmental sustainability. So how do we preserve this stock of uh, susceptible microorganisms in the environment? Of course, while promoting and uh, continuing to improve human health. That was really one of the main insights from the Living with Resistance project is that the way we talk about things is important. And I think the way we talk about AMR needs to be more grounded in actually that reflecting that it is an environmental sustainability challenge. And I think talking about antimicrobial susceptibility is one way. 
to do yeah, that. Yeah, this is very interesting. It is true that the way we talk about something, it actually makes us change the way we think about something and hence maybe find different solutions to the problem. Yeah. So it's very insightful, very cool. And what is the other project you are starting right now? So the other project has to do with um, reflecting another thing we work on at the Stockholm Resilience Center is really that we perceive the relationship between humans and the planet as fundamentally a complex adaptive system. That means for people that are not familiar with complexity science means that there is fundamental uncertainty and there is there will always be surprises. And one of the key things or priorities for society is consequentially to learn how to deal with that uncertainty and to deal with surprise. And that is where resilience comes into the picture. So resilience is really the, you can talk about it as the capacity to deal with uncertainty and continue to develop. Or you can talk about it as a, a form of adaptive capacity in society, just as we talk about adaptive capacity in, in uh, microorganisms. So in this project, uh, which is called the AMR Resilience Project, we are thinking about ways to, practical ways we can build resilience in society towards the challenge of AMR. When you mean society, do you mean uh, more li like the systems that are available as a whole in the society or also about the personal outtakes of people, either the patients or the professionals or, you know, at, yeah. at an individual capacity? We're mainly talking about it at a larger systems, uh, level, yeah, yeah. systems level, but absolutely that you can only have that if you have some degree of resilience also at the, at the personal level. But the main strategy we've identified there is, is really about learning and that I mean, of course, as researchers, we we think we're learning all the time. But what about can we learn in better ways? And so now we're studying this concept of resilience through the lens of interventions. And we're trying to set up an online platform for learning about interventions, which is grounded in actually... Uh, interventions being put online by researchers and them describing what they learned from that or describing the evidence from that. And of course, that is already in the scientific literature many times. Uh, not all aspects of what we learn from interventions are in the scientific literature, but many are. But still, the scientific literature is huge and there are many journals. So we need actually one place, one platform to learn about interventions. And yeah. that's, that's what we're trying to do there. And I also see like scientific literature and scientific publishing perhaps has a different goal than what you are actually trying to achieve with this because I feel like you and I are talking now and you can present to me the challenges that your research presents to you. You might write about that in a scientific article, but it's going to be with a whole different goal that when you actually are conveying it to me and to our audience what the challenges are. So I feel like if people would actually put the time to to talk about these interventions and what worked, what didn't work, and where, because we can come back to this, that resilience should and probably won't be the same in low and middle-income countries than high-income countries because the challenges are also different. So they had to be ready for different type of challenges, right? Absolutely. Resilience is fundamentally context-specific. And I think exactly as you were saying there, it's not always the projects or interventions that we as researchers or uh, society learn the most from that gain the most scientific publicity. Or, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly, in the, in the scientific journal. So, so that's one thing we need to change there, I think. This project is just starting, but I'm very curious about, uh, you are trying to target, I guess, the whole world in a sense, because you want to analyze how the interventions work in different contexts as well. How is the logistics and the practicalities behind this? Yeah. Are you working with a big uh, international team? 
Yeah, we have a, it's a team with partners in Canada, in Geneva and Switzerland, and then here in Stockholm. But of course, we can't do everything. We have to start with just uh, sort of a, a test case. Uh, so right now we're focusing on interventions that take place in at a larger scale because we think there is actually where we have the best sort of evidence-based synthesis is, is often at interventions at the lower scale, like antimicrobial stewardship programs in hospital wards, I think. Yes. But these more complex interventions that take place maybe at the regional level or even the national level mm-hmm. and in organisms that are shared between animals and humans, so this one health perspective, th- those are the types of interventions we're focusing on right now. And you are going to also try to assess maybe the impact they have had with time is that also yeah, part of the plan that is part of the the plan and that's not always the easiest part, easy yeah. uh, but then we we also try and complement what is it described in the literature with surveys sent to authors of those articles where they can give more details about what they think was successful and why something was successful or why the intervention intervention wasn't successful that's what we call sort of a success factors and obstacles mm-hmm. so we're trying to, to gain an understanding um, of of those success factors and obstacles. This looks very exciting and very interesting. I'm really looking forward to learn more about that because we always talk about how well can we achieve the you know desire change in behavior. And I guess you know being resilient as a society or as an individual is also part of how you can behave towards a problem. So it's really interesting. Um, I would like to maybe change gears a little bit, yep. not talk so much about the project, but now talk a little bit about your experience uh, and challenges when working with these multidisciplinary teams, you were mentioning, of course, the language. But I'm also curious as if you have some sort of things that are generally and repeatedly misunderstood when you're coming from such a, you know, biology, evolutionary background and you work with these social sciences or people from other disciplines. I don't know if there are things that are generally misunderstood, but I think there are certainly, I mean, continuously, I think the main, my main insight from working in a interdisciplinary field is is just that to spend time understanding what what and why people do what they do in their field and maybe also a little bit about the history of of various disciplines so i mean medical science has a particular history social science has a particular history but we both need to acknowledge those histories and there are good reasons for why those histories are there but also when we combine them in an interdisciplinary uh, manner it's also important not to be too constrained by those histories so actually i think one of the most important things is just creating a space where people are comfortable stepping out of their disciplinary comfort zone. And if you can do that, then that's really the key for creating interdisciplinary research progress. And what do you think are the, the setup that is needed for this to boil and to work properly? I think uh, time and being in a room together and spending time together. Yeah, and physical listening space. Yeah, and physical closely. space. Yeah. And listening to each other and creating an atmosphere where you feel comfortable saying, well, I actually don't understand why you're doing things like this. Or I find that really interesting. But why are you, haven't you done it like this? Or uh, where you can have an honest conversation. I think mm-hmm. it's, it sounds simple, but it, in reality, it's not that simple because we are, as researchers, living sort of busy w- working lives. Uh, and we go from one project to the other, uh, one meeting to the other. But actually taking, say, you need a, maybe a week or something to have people just being in one place and and get them to get to know each other and maybe have fun together as well, not just doing science, but doing other things. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then that's where I think you get the interdisciplinary advantages. Mm, That's cool. So I'm interested to learn a little bit about 
your wish list for the field you're working on? That means like if you could ask for any systems, any type of help, any type of what what would you wish that you could have access to? Right. I think right now uh, I really wish we would have access to more students to that would start to look at these interventions because there's a huge body of literature on interventions and getting that literature into this platform we're setting up is, is, is a big project but we want this AMR resilience platform to be um, a collaborative project so we're actually calling for and trying to get students outside our groups involved as well and that would be my first <laughs> on the wish list, the wish list. Okay. <laughs> I yeah, guess it's, I'm not uh, the only researcher who would love to have more collaborators yeah i'm sure and um, we hope like whoever is listening to this and he has an interest to to learn a little bit more about this platform and maybe mm -hmm. has something to contribute to it we are gonna of course leave the links and everything on the show notes so anybody that wants you can just go there and maybe get involved in this very very exciting project is there anything else you would like to tell to our audience now that you have this open space to say whatever you want First of all, I just wanted to say, you know, this is a really great initiative that you have going on here in, in Uppsala. I think you're doing really important work in bringing people from different backgrounds together. So in that sense, I, I feel that we have a, a common uh, mission. So yeah, I'm just really looking forward to learning more about what you're doing here as well and meeting people here. Yeah, then I would, to people listening, I guess I would just encourage people to, to read. If there's one thing I would encourage them to is to read outside their literature outside their fields because I think in resilience science or sustainability science we talk about fast and slow variables and the fast variables are those changing quickly and that we work on sort of every day and the slow variables are those changing in the background where we don't always notice when things change or when we work on them but they are really the the variables that set the context for what we do and I think when we read literature is, is one sort of we're actually working on a slow variable, which is our worldview of our scientific worldview of how we perceive the world. So I think that is because we're talking about doing interdisciplinary science and AMR, reading outside your field is one way to expand or broaden your worldview um, so that you will be more prepared in engaging with other people. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, exactly. This is what we are actually aiming with this podcast as well, that people get this at least a little bit of exposure to other ways of thinking and other ways of seeing the problem. So thank you so much for being with us. It was great to interview you and to learn about your work and I'm really looking forward to see what the new projects bring to you. Yeah. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome back to us and like usually we're going to have a short discussion about the super interesting talk we had with uh, Peter because Jennifer wasn't there with me so I want to know like what did you think about this I would say different type of talk we had about AMR. Yeah, it was nice to talk to somebody with an ecology background. I mean, mm -hmm. we tend to get really into kind of the nitty gritty and focus on, you know, the human side of it. It's it's nice. I mean, we've had a few now recently where we've talked about the environmental aspect and that it tends to be more ecology based. But in general, I thought it was a nice focus. And we've talked about, you know, the analogy with climate change before between antimicrobial resistance and climate change. And so focusing from a sustainability perspective was, you know, just a continuation, but it was an interesting thing for you guys to keep talking about and to really hear his perspective on. Yeah, I feel like this interview actually goes really well with the previous episode we had with people from the care center in Gothenburg because they focus a lot in the environment. Particularly, I enjoyed a lot uh, Peter's viewpoint of maybe changing how we look at resistance and rather look or focus on preserving the susceptibility of the bugs 
that are by nature susceptible to these things instead of fighting or trying to take away the resistance that has happened as an aftermath of using the antibiotics. So how do we preserve this susceptibility in terms of a sustainable view of the issue? Because if we can preserve the susceptibility of the bugs that are already susceptible and at the same time, of course, fix the ones that are resistance, then we cannot get to a point where we could live with, with it, right? Yeah. And I like, I like the focus was really, it was kind of from the bacteria's perspective, you know, or the microbes perspective. And also when you talked about, like, they've also done some work, including, you know, herbicides and pesticides, and it all kind of ties together to this whole thing of like, historically in the past hundred years, we've had this idea that these things are no longer problems. We can just kill off the things we don't want in our world. And that's just not, we've come to the conclusion now that that's not what we can do. We have to coexist with bacteria. We have to coexist with pests and other things. And when we see these resistances developing, it's kind of showing that, you know, we have to, there has to be balance. There has to be a sustainable way forward. Talking about sustainability, I think there is a point perhaps for us to talk a little bit more about what is sustainability, what is sustainable development, and why are we talking about it right now? So I was curious, I was like, what is the formal definition of sustainable development? Since it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a word that, of course, Peter has been like putting out in the interview a lot, like sustainability challenge, sustainability challenge, sustainable development. Uh, sustainable development basically is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And of course, this per se, it's has to be an ongoing thing. It cannot be yeah. something that we we work on now and it's going to be solved and we don't have to think about it anymore, which is something that we always talk about AMR, right? AMR yeah. is not something that we can just fix now and forget about it. So therefore, AMR is a sustainable problem, a sustainable <laughs> a sustainability problem. But I was also curious as what are the other sustainability challenges that we live with right now? And of course, I mean, this is not going to come to surprise to anybody, uh, the environment and environmental issues and uh, global warming, climate change is one of them. We talked about it. But also we need to think about things like population and urbanization, how growing populations come with issues of hunger, malnourishment, income inequality, financial crisis, and other section of big sustainability challenges are energy use for example, Mm -hmm. which has to also do with global warming. All these things are very, very interrelated and very connected. Uh, Another sustainability challenge is the water scarcity and water sanitation, of course, is really important all around. And that also is related to AMR in a specific way. Mm -hmm. And a big, big, big thing, of course, in sustainability is also waste management. Because as populations grow, as we get more urbanized, the amount of waste that we are producing is incredible. So how do we manage this waste accumulation and how do we work with it? So just in general, to put this talk into a bigger global context of sustainability, these are other issues that we have to be working on right now to come to a sustainable place in our growth as population in this planet. And about this... In the past times, the United Nations has come up with a global plan that tries to gather the countries to do things that would target these sustainability challenges. And this, what they came up with is the, what we call, or what we say, the Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals, it's a global plan to build a better world for people and our planet. And as we say, the sustainability is something that has no 
end date because it has yeah. to be ongoing. But mm -hmm. this set of actions that the United Nations is trying to put on the countries, uh, it's set to be reviewed or checked by 2030. So there's a set of goals, 17 in particular, that countries will have to work on over the next 10 years. And then we're going to see how action in these subsections of sustainability challenges has actually helped or not helped or gotten better over this period. So just to put into, yeah, as I said, the bigger context, AMR is a sustainability challenge and sustainable development is trying to be targeted globally with these sustainable development goals planned by the United Nations. And we will leave yeah. a link about this. So if you are interested in knowing a little bit more what, what they are and how they work, then you can go there. Hmm. And I think AMR is also a pretty good example of how, like, it's not one of these specific goals or anything like that, but a subset of the goals will apply to different problems. So, for example, for AMR, I mean, there's uh, health and san uh, water sanitation, for example, are a few of these that are, like, access to clean water, are a few of the examples of sustainable development goals that apply really well to the AMR problem. And it can be kind of overwhelming to just see this long list of things, but then you can mm -hmm. easier see, you know, these goals can apply here and they all interact with each other a bit and like benefit, you know, if you improve one goal, it can have a benefit in a lot of different problems and all sorts of things. Yeah. And um, React actually did a very beautiful analysis and assessment of how AMR is related to the sustainable development goals. So we're going to leave a link to that work as well. If you are more interested about how sustainable development goals and AMR get are tied together. together are they're tied together there is a really good resource to check out good but going back to the interview with dr jorgensen uh i thought this um new project that he was talking about where they're doing basically a platform that includes all the interventions that have been done against amr or a lot of different ones in different contexts so i think he was, you're focusing um on large-scale interventions and uh, i think more developed nations in the beginning and then really not just going to, you know, what's published, right? So I thought that was a really interesting thing to bring up, you know, as researchers, we tend to focus on publications and you have to publish your work and that's great and everything. But as you said in the interview, Ava, like the, the, the goal of a publication in a journal is not quite the same as actually giving all the information to somebody. So I think this concept of like, because um, you're talking about sending surveys to the authors of some of these publications, and basically trying to get more information for them putting everything in the platform instead of all in separate journals too, all in one place. I think that's going to be really, really useful because I like I don't know how much people that don't publish, I mean, I, I haven't published anything yet. I'm working on it. So I'm learning this process of how do you write something for publication? And it's very different than just telling the story of I did this and this is what we found. That's not how it goes. So you don't tend to focus on, you know, what didn't work, what was difficult, what was complicated, what was the initial goal, what, what did we end up finding, you know, you're not telling the whole story. And it's not that you're lying, it's just that you write it in a way that becomes clear and easier to understand. Well, if we're really going to apply some of these things to other places, we need to know the, you know, the pitfalls, what was the plan, did it succeed? Was this a side effect that we just happened to find or something like that? You know, it's, it's important that all the information is there. And I think this is a really nice way of doing it to like have it all in one platform and really interviewing the, or surveying the authors and the people who designed the work and really getting from them, you know, what do you think was the best part of this? What do you think was successful? What did you think was a failure? Kind of breaking down science a little bit. Yeah, it is a bit like that. We mentioned it. If we are able to get all the 
picture of this, we might be yeah. able to apply it to different contexts as well. Or so, yeah, I, I found it really beautiful, and I hope, I do hope that he gets the resources that he needs to keep on going with this with this work yeah. because it's really needed. And I really hope that people are open to you know being candid about this and really describing their work. I mean, the publications definitely have their place, but this kind of candor in these situations would be really helpful in actually applying the same study or the same work in different places, at, starting from as good a starting point as possible, you know, without mm -hmm. as, so much resistance. Resist <laughs> maybe not the right word to use here. Without so much um, hesitance or struggle along the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was a pleasure to talk to him and get this um, different perspective and new work that is ongoing. Yeah. But with that, should we move on to our news? Yeah, we should move on to the news for this uh, July episode. See you there. Yeah, so let's go ahead with the news. This was article that we're going to talk about is more on the social aspects of AMR and in particular communications of AMR that you guys know we really love to talk about here. And it's an article recently published on 25th of May on the journal Sociology of Health and Illness by people both at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and people at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, UK. I hope I pronounced that properly because my uh, Scottish accent is not uh, its best, but uh, I hope that was all right. And yeah, um, this article is actually pretty in-depth about the current situation of knowledge of AMR in the public, in the lay public, and trying to analyze what do people know about AMR and how does it relate with the current communication strategies and uh, efforts done to make the public have a response to the current crisis of AMR. Is that, isn't that right, Jenny? What do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that's interesting about this compared to, I mean, I, you're totally right. And it's also was, if I understood right, based in Australia, which is mm -hmm. nice. We haven't really talked much about non-European or US-focused things. Uh, so it's interesting to see, and they focus on, they compare it to, you know, the Australian public health messages that there's been about AMR for the past 20, 30 years. Yeah, so the power and the beauty of this type of work that they're doing is that if we want to have good and effective communications around AMR, we need to know what is the basic underlying knowledge on the public about the topic and how do they relate to the topic. And they go a little bit more beyond this because once they actually, through these interviews, which is their main method of, uh, of work in this article, through these interviews, they analyze what the people know and then they compare this with current analysis of how AMR communications are working, yeah. specifically uh, drawing a lot in the current worker, Catherine Will, which is someone that we have already interviewed in our podcast before, where she is looking into how AMR campaigns are working or not working into actually mobilizing action from the public. And she bases her work into how AMR communications and AMR campaigns and AMR action seek from the public it's based in what she calls behavioral economics which what they are talking about is that these type of approaches that are currently going on in the amr communications world are a little bit taking away the the individuality and the possibility of the public to have a say in what they are going to do related to amr and and resistant presence 
So basically is that we are currently just telling people, okay, this is the situation and this is what you have to do without really engaging them into taking a decision of what they should be doing or not doing. Yeah, it's less of a focus on trying to get people to understand why things are happening and what's happening and more of just a, this is a problem, you should do this kind of thought process, like nudging people into an action without actually going through the whole process of understanding and like embracing that concept. And one thing that I found specifically beautiful about this paper is that they present how AMR knowledge and the AMR situation actually mobilizes and presents a long-standing debate and challenge around public engagement with science and experts. This is like a beautiful example that how do we actually bring together the expert knowledge about a topic and the challenges to get the public engaged in that topic, right? So AMR is like like golden problem in this <laughs> in this in this case, right? Because it's it's heavily technical to to understand what's going on, but also you do need this public engagement to yeah. to come to a sustainable public health solution. So like you said, Ava, like it's this article is based on interviews with people and they really just kind of go into like what these people have said and relatively loose framework from the way that I understood it. Like they kind of bring up a topic and then let the interviewee discuss it as they see. So it's very free language, which I think really helps when you're trying to really grasp what someone understands about a concept. You're not priming them that much. So they had a few topics that they found went through these interviews. Uh, Could you tell them to us? Yeah. So as you said, what they basically did was sitting down and then say, okay, this AMR is a problem. What do you know about this? Mm -hmm. In general, very general terms. What they found, some people were readily able to accept that they don't really know much about it, which is... It's really good that they, because in generally when public is presented to with a problem and they have to explain something, they rather maybe draw from other things they might know about it, not really knowing about the topic, but just trying to explain it away. But it's good that there are some people that are readily able to just say, okay, I don't know about this topic. I only have heard this word super bag or this is something I am not uh, yeah. into it. So it's good. But the rest of the people that they talked to, what they saw is that apart from few people that had maybe more expert knowledge because they have a study microbiology or they mm-hmm. have a, a little bit more this expert biology um, view on the topic the rest generally draw information knowledge that they have from other experiences and other situations around life that they can use to try to explain the little they know about AMR and these general themes these explanations can be divided into several general themes one would be talking AMR around the concept of evolution Another one was to talk about AMR around the hygiene model. Um, another one was about immunity. So what people know already about immune system and how our immunity works and how that relates to AMR. Um, another uh, topic to talk about was how the, there is an habituation on substances. So when the, we take some substances, like for example, it would be like alcohol, so tolerant to alcohol. The more alcohol you take, the more tolerant you become. And this moves into the idea that a lot of people still think that it is the body that becomes resistant to the antibiotic and not the bug itself. This is something that I would like to talk a little bit more about here now that we have the opportunity, because this article makes a really good point on why it might be that this is happening. Why this misconception of the body being the resistant agent and not the bug is so main spread. 
to be honest, this is something that we have been exposed to for a while. Like since I started working more in AMR, I have realized that this is something that is happening, that there is a lot of people that think the body is the resistant agent. And I was always a little bit like, not confused, but wanted to understand why it is it that people believe that. And in this article, there is, I'm going to now quote a part of the article because I think it's very enlightening. They say, and they pose that resistant discourse actually makes sense to lay publics because they inhabit a culture that is built on self-defensive rationality as the means of existence. Simple language to signify AMR might have a value, but the cultural organization of agency and life which the notion of resistant body reflects, might be less easy to erase. This basically means that the concept that is the body that becomes resistance actually come from an inherent view that we have of this compact between things as the explanation of life, right? So it is very difficult for someone without um, biological knowledge or pre-existing knowledge about how bacteria work to understand that it's not the body the one that becomes resistant, but it's the bacteria. And that makes a lot of sense to me that that would be the case because this is what we see day in, day out. And this is the world we kind of grow in, right? That there is two opposing things. So in this case, yeah. it's your body against the bugs and it's the antibiotic is kind of not playing, put into the middle of it. Yeah. I mean, they also, I think it's also interesting when they, like even some of the interviewees in this conversation, they bring up, you know, oh, for example, if you take too many of like other over-the-counter drugs or or you know mm-hmm. alcohol or something else like other mm-hmm. substances it stops having an effect so they also use this kind of as you say they're taking their own personal experiences and applying it to amr and that but they also in this discussion like there was one example of um interviewees where they were discussing this concept of resistant bodies and kind of partway through their response they kind of changed, like they realized that it didn't really fully make sense. Like they were like, oh, but then also the bacteria become more, become stronger. And it's, it was this, this um, example where you see that it's not that they don't understand per se. It's, it's more of this, like, it hasn't been presented so easily. Like they understand that there is an issue with strong bacteria, quote unquote, that we talk about, like that the bacteria themselves are getting stronger. They understand that that's part of it too, but it hasn't really like gone all the way through, you know? Mm-hmm. hasn't been like properly formulated to a single thought so they have this like kind of complex you know lots of ideas that, that they haven't really been able to formulate into one thing yeah and to kind of put it together and how these two things actually can yeah can play a role in it and i think that's the issue like there is not much room or much opportunity for these people as as layman people to discuss about AMR and to talk about it and to actually with the knowledge we have and with new knowledge make a full picture of what it is and when you talk with people like in this example in this article you realize that people do have the capacity and the knowledge to make rational explanations about it but we Mm -hmm. have not really given them the arena for this to happen and this is what all these in kind of areas is like yeah. the way we are communicating AMR right now is a one-way direction is I'm telling you this this is what you have to do and they are taking the agency away from the person to have the possibility to think about it and understand what's going on and then decide what to do about it so yeah. I, I found it really beautiful and really important to uh, look into these things yeah and I mean really I was surprised by how much people had like snapped up, you know, I mean, there was this conversation about like the environmental side of it, uh, antibiotics in the water, antibiotics in animal production, and like 
it's obvious that, you know, people have the capacity to understand. It's more yeah. of like, okay, what, like, what, how do we get there? It's not, it's not that, like, this idea that I think a lot of people have that, like, all oh, people are too stupid to understand. It's like, no, no, they've heard snippets, and they've obviously picked it up, and they've obviously thought about it. Yeah, this is what they yeah. present, that actually the way we are working with AMR communications comes from a basic point that we assume everyone doesn't know anything about it yeah. and they're ignorant. And, and I realize that because, they don't know, but that they won't be able to understand. Yeah, which is even worse. And yeah. it is a good, there is a good analogy they do in the paper, which is like, this is this could be explained easily, like you are going to do an exam to a class about a topic that you have not taught them about yet, yeah. right? Like, of exactly. course, you are not going to get good results. But... Yeah, it was a really cool paper, I thought. Yeah, it was really nice. And I have to also say that this is done for the part of the Monash University in Australia. They are part of the group called AMR Scapes, uh, that they were also working on producing an AMR pod. So we're going to leave the links to their groups and to their Twitters as well. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in learning more about what they're doing, which is a lot of cool stuff related with AMR and communications and public, just go in and check it out because it's uh, definitely worth it. And it makes you think a lot too so that's always good we have another paper too jenny can you introduce the second paper which i'm also super excited to talk about today <laughs> yeah so now we're changing really from the social sciences aspect of amr to a very technical very um chemistry based which is not really our field either so we're not going to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty details but we kind of want to tell give an update on the story of an antibiotic called tixobactin. Uh, the article itself that we're going to talk about is called The Mode of Action of Tixobactins in Cellular Membranes. It was published in Nature Communications on June 5th of this year. It's a collaboration between several different universities, uh, including Utrecht and the University of Liverpool and University of Florence, and I think more. So this is a big work, a lot of people involved. and. I just have to say that the first author of the paper is called Rhythm, and I just found it so Yeah, their cool. name That's is the Rhythm. One. It's a really yeah, nice it's name. Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's an open paper, so if you want to know more of the details that we're kind of um, glazing over today, then you can get all the information from the article itself. But I think to start, we actually have to back up a little bit. Once upon a time in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> so five years ago, I guess. I didn't actually know how long ago it was. So texobactin was found in this really novel and interesting way. So we've talked before about how a lot of bacteria are not culturable. So in other words, we can't grow them in a lab. We can't actually see these bacteria. We can't like work with these bacteria. But a lot of antibiotics come from, you know, are naturally produced by other bacteria because it's about the balance in the ecological niches where they are and, you know, balancing out competing other bacteria. So that's the whole purpose of a lot of these antibiotics that we've had. So texobactin was discovered by not culturing the bacteria themselves, basically. It was a, it was like a, a chip or like a, a method of basically letting chemicals from certain bacteria, like without growing the bacteria, diffuse to other places so that you could see if something in the bacteria that they can grow could actually prevent the growth of other bacteria. It's a little complicated. We can leave a link to that paper as well because it's also super interesting to read about. But they discovered this molecule called texobactin and found that it seems to be very broad spectrum. In other words, it kills a lot of things. It was very effective. And that they couldn't find resistance occurring naturally. That doesn't necessarily mean that it won't ever occur, just that <laughs> they didn't see it at the time, which is promising still. 
Yeah, I credit remember. Credit is due. <laughs> I remember back in the day when the, this paper came out that we were reviewing it in the lab and we were like, no way, this is not going to get resistance. This is like, yeah. this is very high hopes. It will happen <laughs> one way or another. Well, we're five years later, still they haven't really found an easy way for bacteria to become resistant to this antibiotic. And now we're going to talk a little bit more why perhaps this is happening. Yeah. But so in general, I mean, obviously this sounds like a great antibiotic to work with, right? So why don't we make it? Why don't we start using it in the clinic? The problem is it's hard to make. It's not, not only hard to make, it's expensive to make. It's, it uses, um, like the chemical structure is kind of something beyond what we're good at synthesizing. And it's not very soluble, meaning it's, it's just really hard to make this compound into a drug that's going to work in a human being which is too bad. And of course, this is something that they're working on is like, okay, we need to find out what's important in this compound for its antibacterial effect so that we can adjust everything else, basically, so that it can be made into a drug. Yeah. So as we have talked before in the drug discovery process, a very important part is these chemical modifications that are done so we can make a drug that really works as a, as a drug, like yeah. that it can actually be taken. It can end up in the place where it should be working and it will work well. So yeah. now we are in this stage where like we need to gather more information about texobactin as an agent to be able mm -hmm. to modify it for those properties that are needed for it to become a drug. Because it wasn't super clear how this worked. Like they had a vague understanding that it's probably associated with the lipid structure. So basically the bacterial membrane. The surface and, of the bacteria. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't really know exactly how it worked. So here they're looking at, okay, how does texobactin bind to what uh, it's called lipid 2 that they're looking mainly at here. And how does this binding work? How does this work to kill the bacteria and whatnot? Like how are these complexes formed? And interestingly, so they do a lot of work looking at these complexes with texobactin and lipid 2 and finding that they bind and how the affinity works and what parts of the molecule are important, the texobactin molecule mm -hmm. are important. And then when they move it into physiological conditions or, mm -hmm. you know, like actual cell conditions. So what the antibiotic would actually be facing in the cell, mm -hmm. it doesn't work very well. There's not like this compound does not bind a lot to this lipid. That they thought it was actually the main mechanism of action before yeah. doing this work. Yeah. So since it doesn't seem to bind that well, it doesn't, this doesn't seem to be the main way that it's killing the bacteria. At least just this specific binding to this thing doesn't seem yeah. to be the main reason of why bacteria are being killed by texobactin. So what they did was to look a little bit more forward. Okay, if this is not the main thing, what else can we see when texobactin is working in the surface of the cells? And what did they find? So they found that texobactin, when it comes into the, if I've understood this right, to huge caveat, uh, this is a little bit outside of my comfort zone. They basically found that the texobactin kind of clumps together when it interacts with the membrane. And then these kind of clumping and clustering processes actually disrupt and kind of like pull in all these precursors to these lipids so like what the building blocks are it kind of just disrupts the process of like letting these precursors ever be used in the building process of these membranes and the like the cell structures that they need mm -hmm. so it may not be so specific so because one of the things that they were looking at when they were looking at how texobactin could bind to lipid 2 in general they found that it was a pretty non-specific thing right that what might be so great about this is that it's not super specific to lipid 2. It's not super specific to anything. It's kind of more general, like there's a bit of flexibility here. And that could be part of the process with this clustering as well. I mean, it's not specifically clustering 
a specific precursor, it's kind of clustering a lot of stuff and just kind of disrupting in a certain way. So it's not very specific, which is promising, but also a little bit difficult because some of the parts that, if I've, if I've understood right, some of the parts of this molecule that make it hard to synthesize seem to be really important. Mm -hmm. So it's, it doesn't really give a lot of answers maybe on how to make this easier to produce or to make into a drug, but it does give us a lot more understanding of how the drug might possibly work and why mm -hmm. it maybe isn't leading to a lot of resistance because it's really hard to develop resistance to something that's really nonspecific. Exactly. And also if this making of clusters and uh, pooling of these precursors is actually the main reason of the killing, of course, you are not going to be able to get resistant just by one point mutation that might reduce the affinity to bind to one thing because it's yeah. actually this compound of like low affinity getting all this together and making this cluster which is actually the reason of the bacteria mm -hmm. being killed so that's you have cool. to change so much at the same time and like this is yeah. very central to the structure of the cell it needs a functioning membrane to live so it's understandable that if this is the mode of action this is a very hard thing for the cell to overcome but it doesn't change how hard it could be to synthesize this molecule unfortunately mm-hmm but it's a really cool step along the way for this small. I mean, this is an interesting story to follow because it was so <laughs> yes. different. It's so promising in a way, but it's disheartening Hard. that it's difficult. <laughs> but I mean, this is. I think this is a good real life example of how drug discovery, especially for antibiotics, is so hard. Yeah. You need to find the thing. Once you find the thing, it needs to work properly. It needs to give bacteria. It needs to not develop resistance so easily yeah. not to give people all these all these things and it is it is hard but it's definitely worth the efforts and try to yeah. find answers to this overall the main message of the paper of course is we need to move into doing more work in physiological conditions to really understand how this works and how this can be modified and still be working mm -hmm. and that the more info we have the better development of this drug we're gonna be able to to produce so yeah so this is really just kind of opening up more for okay we need mm -hmm. to understand more we understand a little bit more now we need to understand even more and then mm -hmm. that's where you can move forward with the drug development indeed so yeah we are done with the news for this month of july uh we want to say that uh, jenny at this moment is about 10 days to deliver <laughs> her baby so this yeah. is like amazing that you're here recording with us <laughs> i think my uh, on my side i my voice might be a little bit weird because i am heavily on antihistaminics and the allergies are basically killing me right now so if you <laughs> feel like my voice is weird it's because of that so for the next time we actually publish an episode baby jay is going to be with us <laughs> so that would be really cool yeah and uh hopefully hopefully we'll be able to do everything on time we're trying yeah if, but, if we uh, are a bit delayed, you guys know why it yeah. is happening. This is my first kid, so I am super <laughs> overly optimistic as to how much I'll be able to do. <laughs> you, are, you are a super person, so I'm sure everything's going to go right. <laughs> oh, we'll see. But yeah, just so everybody yeah. knows. Mm -hmm. We hope right. to see you back here with us in the month of August then. Thank Bye. you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, 
and Bo Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.